Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. So for a lot of people, uh, this is a season that involves road trips. Uh, some of you are going places. Uh, some have already left to go places. And uh, others, of you, uh, others of you either are or will be receiving uh, uh, friends and family members coming to your home for the holidays. But I remember when we were first-time parents, Patty and I, and we went on our first road trip with our one newborn daughter, I, I was shocked that uh, one little 10-pound baby would require twice the amount of luggage as both my wife and me combined. How could it be that a person so small that you could carry her in one arm would require 100 pounds of accessories when you leave the home? Car seats, cribs, portable cribs, bouncy seats, toys, uh, food, and so on. And what Christmas does for us is it actually presents to us another child. The difference is that he wasn't born for us to carry him. He was born in order to carry us. He wasn't born so we could carry all of his freight. He, he was born so that, that he could carry the weight of the world on his shoulders, quite literally. And uh, you, know, you may have noticed in your bulletin that the title of today's message is A Little Child Shall Lead Them. That's actually a direct excerpt from the 11th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, uh, verse 6. And uh, you know, pictured there is a, a child in Jesus Christ who would be born in order to raise us. And uh, he did not come in order to add to our burdens, but to lift our burdens. He didn't come uh, to, uh, to have us raise him as much as he came to raise us up, uh, to become the people that he has created us to be. And so, what I want to do is explore just this theme of Christmas, this, this theme of the child coming in to lift us up and to raise up us, us up from, from three headings. Uh, he came to, to give us a better mind, he came to give us bigger hearts and also a more certain hope. So, uh, Christ comes into the world. 
is born into the world to give us better minds. This word, counselor, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Many of us have benefited, myself included, uh, from the service and wisdom of counselors. Counselors are there to help us see the world accurately from a more healthy and life-giving and true point of view. And here we see that Christ came into the world to fulfill that role as well. If you go to the 55th chapter of Isaiah, you'll, you'll see, you know, tucked in there these famous verses that say, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and His ways are higher than our ways. It's talking about the wisdom of God. Wisdom is something that we can't necessarily see or perceive without a wise one outside of ourselves coming in and helping us see what we can't see, feel what we can't feel, understand what we can't understand without that perspective. You know, Cornelius von Till, which was one of the, the theologians that David Filson focused on in his dissertation, uh, said this, that we are meant to think God's thoughts after Him. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, to the, to the degree, to whatever degree that we are enabled and empowered and instructed by the wonderful Counselor to know things that God knows and to see things in the way that God sees them, the more ability we will have to weather just about anything that life under the sun, to, to borrow words from Ecclesiastes, throws at us. There's a context into which Isaiah writes this prophecy, and it, it's, it's unveiled to us here in verse 1. There is gloom and there's anguish and contempt, it says, that, that, that have been brought uh, upon Zebulun and Naphtali. What, are, what, what does this mean, Zebulun and Naphtali? What, what's the significance there? Well, these are the two cities that were actually hit the hardest in 733 B.C. or thereabouts in the Assyrian invasion, when, when the world power Assyria came in to, to take over. And he goes on in verse 4 and says that the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So, there's another reference there of disadvantage and weakness and, and, and oppression and fear and people living in darkness crying out for a light. Midian. Is that a familiar place to you? If you've read the book of Judges and if you've gone specifically to chapter 7, you'll see the story there of how the Midianite armies, a formidable force, tens of thousands of soldiers are about to attack the nation of Israel. And God approaches Gideon, who's the commander of the Israelite army, and he says, I'm going to reduce the size of your army for this fight against this massive army of Midian. I'm going to reduce the size of your army from 22,000 soldiers to 300. And not only this, they're going to be the weirdest soldiers 
Because they're going to be the ones, when they drink, they lap the water up from the pool or the pond or the river like a dog. I mean, imagine if you're, say you're an entrepreneur, or you're, you're a venture capitalist and you're investing in something new and, 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 and you're hoping for progress, you're, you're hoping for some great business or, or innovation to be built out of your efforts, and you're recruiting your team. And, and, and your board, whoever is overseeing you, tells you, in your interviews, look for this one thing. People who answer your questions, woof, woof, woof. <laughs> People who go woof, 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 and <laughs> hire them on the spot. That, that's as, about as absurd as God's message to Gideon is. Take only the soldiers that act like dogs. They're going to be your fighters. Everybody else, dismiss them, send them on home. And what happens is with this small, extremely strange army of 300 soldiers, God wins the battle before anybody lifts a finger. And the reason why God did this, the reason why God says, I'm going to make you into an underdog before the fight begins, this is the reason given. Lest you say that we defeated Midian by our own hand. See, God is diminishing them in order that the exaltation and victory, the sound defeat that's going to be in their favor, they don't take credit for it. But they understand this was a salvation that came completely from outside of ourselves. This is the wisdom of Christmas. God is for the underdog. If you're living in darkness, there's a great light on the horizon. And it can actually be seen in the midst of the darkness if you have eyes to see it. Are you experiencing defeat? On the horizon is going to be an occasion for you to divide the spoil from the victory. And there's going to be joy in the process. So, um, a lot of people move to cities like Nashville because of big dreams and visions about the mark that they might be able to make on the world. Maybe some will come to Nashville to uh, give their best shot to curing a disease that has not found a cure yet through health care, or uh, maybe to have your name in lights, or to get, you know, your songs out there, to make your mark in some way, shape, or form. You know, the city that we moved to Nashville from, New York City, is, um, is that on steroids, and I can remember uh, one time when Tim Keller was giving a sermon on this specific text to a room full of New Yorkers, and he asked the hypothetical question. He says, I know all of you are ambitious. What if your goal, though, was so audacious? What if your goal was this? 2,000 years from now, I want three-quarters of the human race to know my name. I want one quarter of the human race to be organizing their entire lives around my vision and around my teaching. And, and, and another part of your vision was, I want entire civilizations 2,000 years from now to be built around my vision for, for the flourishing of human beings and of societies and such. Well, how would you go about it if that was your vision, that in 2,000 years they would still be remembering you for these great things. You would say to yourself, I need a strategic uh, plan. I need a consultant. 
I need a wonderful counselor to help me realize this vision for my own greatness. And Tim would go on to say, consultants would never say this. If you want to be remembered in that way 2,000 years from now, then be born in a stable among urine in a little town in the middle of nowhere. Spend your life outside of all of the power networks, all of the networks of economic power, political power, academic influence. Get no credentials, then get executed early in your career in absolute disgrace. That's your strategy. That was the strategy of the one upon whom the government of the universe rests. You know, in our small group um, last week, we were talking about these things, and, and uh, Richie Sessions, who uh, loves the author Walker Percy, said, did you all know the reason why Walker Percy became a Christian? He became a Christian because Israel exists. Isn't that interesting? Walker Percy became a Christian because Israel is still here. I've never heard that reason given before, but, but if you think about it, these people had everything stacked against them. They were exiled and oppressed by the Egyptian pharaoh. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert. They endured Herod, Herod the king's uh, uh, genocide, his, his decree to take the lives of every firstborn son in order to obliterate the people of Israel from the face of the earth. They endured Hitler's Holocaust, which was another effort to exterminate Jews from the face of the earth. But let's go back to New York City. When we lived there, our entire building, except for us and maybe a handful of others, were Jewish. We were the ones that sometimes would, would be pressing the buttons on the elevator on the Sabbath because we would be asked to do so by our Jewish neighbors. And their evangelism strategy didn't exist. Uh, Patty actually had a conversation with one of our Jewish neighbors in the laundry room once and said, you know, uh, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as well. I, we would love to come visit your temple sometime. And he politely said, I don't think that would be a good idea. That's not the best evangelism strategy. <laughs> the, the only Jewish evangelism we experienced on the streets of New York was, was Jewish people would say to us, are you Jewish? And we would say, no. And they would say, okay. And then they moved on to the next person. <laughs> but here's the thing. You live in New York long enough, you understand that the Jewish people are running the town and have been for many years. Did you know that many of the most successful businesses on Music Row are owned by Jewish people in New York City. Isn't that interesting? And yet, have you ever met an Assyrian? Have you ever met a Babylonian from these massive, indestructible empires? Have you ever met a Roman soldier? Isn't that amazing that Israel exists? And these massive empires have been toppled to the ground by people who act like dogs and such. Christmas is, among other things, confrontational. If you are like Assyria, Babylon, Rome, you know, driven by Nietzsche's will to power, 
I'm going to win. And that's what my life is going to be built around, winning. If you think you're invincible, think again. You know, this whole Zebulun and Naphtali story and this Midian story, we're seeing this play out in a different form now as people with massive power who have used that power to exploit and to abuse in private places are losing everything. You never know when the little guy is going to defeat the will to power. But that's the story of the universe. That's the story of Christmas. 1 Corinthians 1.27 and following, you know, Paul writes, you know, he says essentially, it doesn't seem this way now, but, and he writes, consider your calling. Those who've been bullied, those who've been forgotten, those who aren't included in the the elite social circles, those who are dealing with chronic fatigue and chronic illness and, and with a diagnosis that, that you can do nothing about and, and you're going to live with it for the rest of your life, those of you who are struggling in marriage, those of you who are lonelier in marriage than you were single, those of you who are lonely in singleness and wish you were married, whatever your struggle might be, those of you who are miserable in your work, it doesn't seem that way now, but, Paul says, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Why? For the same reason that He chose 300 people who acted like dogs to be Gideon's army. It's right there, almost verbatim, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that no human being might take credit for your skill set, for your accomplishments, for your IQ, for your SAT score, so that nobody would take credit, but recognize that all is gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Chesterton said it this way, Christianity is a religion of little things, not a moral majority, not a power block, a religion of little things, a better mind to think rightly, to think God's thoughts after Him, same God who would save the world through a little child from a disadvantaged place. Also, bigger hearts, verses 6 and 7, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This word wonderful or wonder is something that we're meant to experience, not only at Christmas time, but all year long. You know, Advent is a season of opportunity to enter into the wonder of the reality that this is a fairy tale, but it just so happens to be a fairy tale that's true. You know, every day we're tempted because of the hard things that we face. We're tempted towards cynicism. I mean, it says right here, we're living in darkness. That's what it means to be alive, to, to exist with darkness all around us. You know, I look at you, my, my church family. I was looking out in, in the earlier service today, and, and there are so many of you, you the odds from, a, from, a, from the world's perspective are stacked against us. Breakups and heartbreak that comes from that, bereavement, jobs that haven't worked out, 
health difficulties, unemployment, guilt, regret, nothing good discernibly on the horizon. And then there are others in our midst who maybe you feel like you're killing it, like these are your best years. You're winning. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm about to turn 50. I turn 50 next year, and so I've, I've had all these morbid kind of middle-aged guy thoughts for the last several months. And to add to that, I've been studying, really studying up on Ecclesiastes for uh, the new series that starts in January. Everything is meaningless. All is vanity. Get ready. I hope you're looking forward to it. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Here's the thing about Ecclesiastes, though. It's caught me in a way I didn't expect it to. Everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. Those are inaccurate translations. Those aren't what the text says. The text says everything is vapor. The word means vapor. And and, and essentially, the theme of Ecclesiastes is don't try to latch on to your career or to your hedonistic pleasure or to you know, your marriage or to your children or to your parents or to whatever it is that you're, you're cherishing, don't latch on to it as if that's going to be the thing that, that gives you significance and, and everlasting joy because it's going to be like trying to hold on to smoke. Everything is vapor. You know, I'm sitting at the Johnny Swim concert a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you don't know who Johnny Swim is, they're, they're this amazingly beautiful, like if there's such thing as what a goddess and a god look like, it's probably Abner and Amanda. Um, They're just gorgeous human beings creating incredibly brilliant uh, music, connecting wonderfully to to younger generations especially. And they invited for the second year in a row the CPC choir to sing behind them, to be their backup. And I'm sitting there in the concert thinking to myself, this is wonderful. I'm looking around at all this youthful vitality and joy and energy, and the thought that comes to my head is, all these people are going to be dead in a hundred years. That's <laughs> where my head is. Everybody's going to, be, going to be gone. Everyone. And then they sing this song which I've heard a hundred times before, but it caught me for the first time. The lyrics include, let's chase down the sun. Let's live while we're young. We'll die when we're done. That was Ecclesiastes in a couple of sentences. Live your life in light of your death. Live well Seize the day, you know, carpe diem, as they said in Dead Poets Society. You know, the, the, the answer to life being a vapor is not to crawl under your covers in despair and cynicism. The answer is you live your very best life with whatever God's given you to live with. The end of the matter is fear God and keep His commandments and live well. And yet, Amid amid the darkness, the Lord is saying to us, there is a resource here and now to enlarge your world, to enlarge your heart, and to captivate you with wonder. How do you experience wonder? Through praise. This is one of the things I love about Christmas season and Advent. It's a season of singing. If I had my way, we would start Christmas music in our home August 1. Uh, 
we've reached an agreement, and Thanksgiving is the day that Christmas music begins. But praise is a strategy. Wonder is a strategy that God has given us to enable us to face the darkness, to heal our cynicism, to defeat our despair, to preserve our joy. I mean, think about Mary when, when the angel of the Lord said, hey, guess what? You're pregnant. woo And she's like, wait a minute. I'm engaged to Joseph, and I've, I've never been with him or any other man. I mean, think about what's, what must have been going on through her mind. I, this means I'm going to be wearing the scarlet letter in my community for the rest of my life. Nobody's going to understand. Nobody's going to believe this story. Joseph is suddenly a flight risk. The man that has loved me for so long is now a flight risk. I'm going to be ostracized for sure. And she surely was. And yet, her internal response, shaped by a better mind and a bigger heart, she treasured all these things in her heart, it says. And then she sang and gave us the Magnificat. Are you familiar with that? That that beautiful song of Mary in the gospel narratives. You know, C.S. Lewis in Reflections on the Psalms talked about how he used to hate church music. So, that was my least favorite thing about church. I would, I would just skip the music. I'd show up for the, the teaching and then skip the music again. You know, what, what, what kind of God commands praise for Himself? Is He insecure, Lewis says? Is He stuck up? What, what's His deal? And then it dawned on Lewis, praise is not for God, it's for us. Here's what he wrote. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised the most, while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised the least. The healthy man could praise even a very modest meal, but the snob found fault with all. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Grumpy, complaining spirit, you're unhealthy. You're a crank. You're missing out on the wonder. Even being able to praise the smallest little meal, you're not far from the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis's point is this. Praise is an exhale. Praise is, is, is the way that we are, are enabled to complete the enjoyment of something that is beautiful to us. You know, a baby's smile, a sunset, taking it, taken in by a, a beautiful music score, getting an A+, your favorite team scoring a touchdown. Why do we spontaneously burst open? I, mean, I remember last week, after hearing that masterful sermon from Paul Lim in here, I, I, I picked up my phone and I sent a text message to Scotty Smith, who's a pastor at another church here in town. I said, you have got to get online and listen to Paul's sermon. It's the best Advent sermon I've ever heard in my life. No hyperbole, no, no exaggeration. The best Advent sermon I've, sermon I've ever heard in my life. And then back and forth, Scotty and I are texting, oh, wasn't it amazing what he said here? And How did he get that? And blah, da, 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 da. It completed the enjoyment of something beautiful that we got to be part of. That's how praise works. And then a more certain hope. 
Hope is the ability to endure present darkness because, what, because you know what the future is. You know, Isaiah speaks in a double tense here. He speaks in the past. The people in darkness have seen a great light. He also speaks in the future. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, so certain is this future event that Isaiah is talking about that he speaks about it in the past tense in the same way that you do when somebody says, hey, can you do me a favor? And you say, done. You haven't done it yet, but you say, done. And so they know on their end, it's done. Maybe not this moment, but it's going to be done because they trust your word. But there's also a future reality to anticipate. The second advent of Christ, who is named, and I'm going to run through these three and then we're going to go to the table. Prince of Peace, Shalom. This is more than inner tranquility. This is the restoration of all things, people, places, and things. You ever wonder why that's in our mission statement? It's because of John 3.16. God so loved the world. Literally, God so loved the cosmos, every square inch of everything that He created. He so loved that He gave. He's not only going to redeem and restore and rescue people. He's going to, the whole creation is going to follow after that because He's the Prince of Shalom. He's also the everlasting Father, everlasting, which means the best days are always ahead under His care and never behind us. And an increasing dominion of the increase of His government, there will be no end. No better way to finish this sermon than with an excerpt from a commentary on the book of Isaiah from one of my predecessors here at Christ Prez, uh, Dr. Ray Orland, who says this, Jesus will not come back to tweak this problem and that. He will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever, of the increase, forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say, this is the limit. He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite, and every new moment will be better than the last. You think the first advent of Christ was impressive. You ain't seen nothing yet. That was just a foretaste, an appetizer just like this is for the wedding feast of the Lamb that is yet to come. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. How far? So far that the baby born in a manger will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and the future will get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Are you in? Let's pray. Father in heaven, these words from C.S. Lewis um, expose our cynicism. We, we complain about the smallest little thing, the smallest little thing that over half of the world's population would be infinitely grateful for. We are cranks. We are grumpy. And, and we have such amnesia, Father, as we complain about the smallest things. We have such amnesia about the bigger things and the bigger picture things. 
that you are moving history, that you are redeeming and restoring every single square inch, and we get to be part of that story. We get to enter into it with better minds and bigger hearts, struck, awestruck with wonder. Father, forgive us for not being awestruck, for being bored with a wonderful counselor and a prince of shalom and an everlasting father with an increasing dominion. Forgive us for our boredom and thank you for the hope that you've given us that we have not seen anything yet. That just as the first advent of Jesus that Isaiah foretold came to pass, this second advent of Jesus, which Isaiah also foretold in the same passage, is yet to come. Meet us now at this table, we pray, in the strong name of the child. Amen.